Can we please just invite and, and welcome Gabe Allred this morning? I could have got Shannon to do it, but, you know. <laughs> Thank you, sir. Well, good morning, everyone. I, uh, between singing hard last night and allergies this morning, I always tend to sound like, the aftermath is always, I tend to sound like Neil Diamond after a rough party. So, that or uh, I'll do my best didgeridoo impressions this morning. Um, it's going to be an exciting morning for you. Enduring my voice for the next hour, first thing in the morning. I always liken my, my teaching style. I'm not the most expressive and dynamic speaker. She's coming next. Um, but it's, we're married, so I guess we're one. Which I guess means I can go till 12. Anyway, my, uh, my teaching style uh, is... Uh, or like, uh, I don't know, I, I compare it to like if, uh, if wallpaper paste had an audio book. So, uh, <clears throat> um, and also my humor is uh, parched. So if it may have been funny, just laugh at it and it will be okay. Because my face is mostly German and doesn't work especially in regards to emotions. Ask my wife. So, Lord, whatever you want to do today, whatever you want to teach us, just like we said last night, we just preemptively say yes because we trust you. You're faithful. You're good. Oh, you're so much better than we think, so help us change the way we think, Lord. Namaste. Whatever that means. Um, okay, so today we're going to talk about worship, but, well, duh, that's kind of what I do, but um, before we talk about worship, uh, really before I talk about anything, I like to define what we're going to talk about, because, um, guys, I'm going to have to make you sit outside. It's the, the peanut gallery. Um, uh, before I really talk about anything, I always like to define what we're going to talk about because uh, you talk about almost anything. You could have as many people as you have in the room. You could have that many definitions or assumptions about that thing. Uh, like if I were to say, let's talk about fathers this morning. And some of you could be like, yes, that's my favorite subject. And others are saying, no, that's my most hated subject because depending on your experience... Uh, and I found often when I talk about worship, if I ask people to define it, uh, the answer that I get back uh, quite often is, uh, it's a lifestyle. Worship is a lifestyle. Oh, that sounds nice. What does it mean? I have no idea, but it sounds good enough to put on a t-shirt, so it's my motto. Um, <clears throat> I like practical things. I like things that work. I want, if it doesn't have... If it doesn't have the ability to bring effectual change to me, then it's just a flowery saying that serves no purpose. So we're going to work on making things work. Amen? Um, I feel like, especially this day and age, because worship... Now, when I grew up, worship didn't sound good. 
um, especially when I was in youth group. It sounded terrible. In fact, oh, the songs we did. Um, and Sunday morning, and I never wanted to be a worship leader because growing up, um, being in a worship service, what I always saw was I don't want to be the person in charge of taking people up to a place they clearly don't want to go. That's what it looked like to me. So, <clears throat> um, but the Lord likes, he seems to take note of everything I, whenever I say, I don't want to do that. And he says, okay, put that on the list. He's going to do that. So pastoring a church, although I wouldn't be a pastor, it'd be more teacher and then I'll have pastors that can do the thing. Yeah, I, I like talking about the five-fold ministry, but we don't have time for that. Um, <clears throat> This day and age, worship is the execution of it um, is is done so well that, and I want to be careful because I'm not trying to I'm not trying to slam anybody. This is just cultural ignorance by and large. Um, as I feel that many many movements or streams have gotten so so good at the packaging of worship that they, they tend to know more about the vehicle of worship than they do the destination. And so they have this really beautiful car, but no driver's license. They don't really know where to go with it. And, you know, the purpose of having a car is to take you places, correct? So, um, <clears throat> so we're going to try to talk about some of that. And... Um, Skip, skip, skip. Don't have time. Skip, skip, skip. No one cares if I was bullied as a child. I don't know why you're laughing at that. That's tragic. This is comedy hour, okay? This is just family, folks. This is... Because we all worked at CF and I at the same time, give or take, so love hurts. Um, I don't know. Should, should I tell the bully story, Laura? Because last night during worship, I felt like maybe somebody needed to hear this story. So I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to tell this story real quick. I've been working on, like, one of my life mottos. Okay, so at, 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 at 40 years old, the Lord told me to go to school and study psychology. So now I'm 42. I'm in college for the very first time in my life, so I'm doing basic, you know, like math and English, all the fun stuff, and on my way to perhaps a PhD at this later advanced age, which means that I care about it this time. Um, <clears throat> but anyway, I'm, I'm fascinated with science, and uh, it's just hard to believe with the tone of my voice and how excited I am about everything. Um, shocking. But um, I've been chewing on this phrasing in my own heart, but I, I say um, I believe that much that is to be discovered are things that are assumed to be known. In other words, I believe that a lot of the things that are to be discovered either in science or when it comes to the Lord or whatever, 
are not things that have never been seen before, but things that have been understood incorrectly up till, up till now. And a lot of that discovery comes even within ourselves, about ourselves. So when, when I was a kid, I grew up in a foreign land where children played outside. These days it's all indoors and it's digital and they play with people they've never seen. Um, but I played outside and um, rode bikes. I know, it's strange. And um, uh, the way boys work, girls don't do this. Girls have other ways of tormenting each other, but they, they do it emotionally and whatnot. Boys just hit each other. And um, at least when I was growing up, there was always this toughness rank, this... Um, they, you would have little squabbles and then pretty soon it was understood who was where on the totem pole of toughness. Well, I lived on the bottom. I was the, the floor mat, the doormat for the totem pole. And um, uh, there was a kid on our street. His name was Daniel. Bless his heart. He was your stereotypical bully in every sense. And um, Daniel loved to bully me because he knew that I would take it. And um, it was quite regular that he would push me off my skateboard and take my skateboard away from me and punch me or kick me and then trip me and then I'd lay on the ground and he'd kick me in the stomach. And I would just lay there and take it. And um, I would lay there and take it because I believed that if I fought back... I would get in trouble. And I was more afraid of getting a spanking than I was getting beat up. So, <clears throat> that was just a regular occurrence. Well, one day, same song, second verse, 18th millionth verse, um, ride my skateboard, Daniel comes out, pushes me off, takes my skateboard, kicks me, knocks me down, kicks me in the stomach, kicks me in the back, and I just take it. I'm crying and take it. And then I get up and take it home, and he calls my mother colorful names, <clears throat> which, again, I don't know why that was always integral to our interaction, but um, I just said, we'll see what my mom thinks about that. And I went home with tear-stained face, crawled into a chair in the living room and sobbed. And my parents came in and said, why are you crying? And explained... David beat, uh, Daniel beat me up again. And I said, well, why don't you defend yourself? <laughs> what? Why don't you defend yourself? Because I thought I would get in trouble. What on earth ever gave you that idea? Why would you think that you couldn't defend yourself? Because I thought I would get in trouble. What? Why would you get in trouble for defending yourself? I don't, I don't know. I still don't know where that idea came from, except extraordinarily low self-worth, perhaps. They said, well, we don't want you to get in fights, but heaven's sake, defend yourself. Protect yourself. You have our permission to do that. 
I was probably around four feet tall, naturally, but emotionally I grew to around 12'7". Upon hearing that, I think it was the next day we were, all the kids were outside playing, and um, one of the bigger kids, instigators, said um, to myself and to Daniel, Hey, didn't you guys get in a fight yesterday? And uh, Daniel turned to me. And pushed me and said, uh, yeah, I believe we have some unfinished business. And I pushed him back and I said, yes, I believe we do. And that was the last time he ever messed with me. So why is that story important? It's not. Let's move on. Okay. Um, no. That story is important because I believe kind of like what happened to me, we all carry around assumptions about ourselves, these hidden beliefs. And here's, here's, the, here's the thing about assumptions. They, they're beliefs that we have that we don't know that we have. And a belief that you have that you don't know that you, that you, don't know you have can control and affect your life just like a belief that you're conscious of. This one did. I did not know why I believed that I could not defend myself. I don't know where it came from. No one had ever told me that. But it was a belief that I held to like a conviction. And as a result, I lived as a, as a victim of bullying all of my childhood, or a chunk of it. Again, don't know where it came from. Don't know why I had it, but it brought much effect to my life. <clears throat> the Lord reminded me of that story in recent years. And as a result, I've been asking him, what else do I believe that you can't say amen to? And I'm just asking him, I try to just regularly ask him, take inventory of my thinking and clean it out. I don't want to have anything inside me that you can't work with or that works against you. So my parents gave me that revelation. Revelation is a powerful thing. But revelation in and of itself is no good unless it's acted on. Because revelation is always an invitation for transformation. Always. But that requires action on our part. And unless we're willing to act on it, it will become knowledge that we have that is fruitless. It becomes the kind of information that we have that we know how to say amen to, but it doesn't bring effectual change. So we can hear somebody preach on a Sunday and say just a, an astounding word that would transform cities, that we go, amen, and then never do anything with it. Unless we act on it, it becomes dead knowledge. 
So <clears throat> my parents gave me that revelation. You can defend yourself. Now, we understand that knowledge, that revelation required me to act on with my friend Daniel. Um, if I didn't act on it, I could just continue on with Daniel, living the victim, yet knowing internally, personally, I'm free from this. I don't have to be a victim anymore, but I'm afraid to act on it, so I'll just carry the silent revelation in me and continue to live out this pattern of victimhood. Or I could put my money where my mouth was and stand on the revelation, this is my right. And as a result, no step out of being a victim into being victorious. So, <clears throat> this one act, what's this one revelation, once I put action to it, it changed the way I saw myself, because I wasn't a victim. It changed the way I saw my parents, that they cared about me, because I had somehow this hidden belief that they didn't care if I got beat up. Again, not something they ever told me, but it was a, it was a belief that I had. It changed the way my friends saw me. I wasn't just a pushover anymore. In fact, I went from being the lowest on the totem pole and I just skipped ranks all the way to like the second toughest kid on the, little, on the street. Because if I stood up to them, to the main bully, the one, the instigator, then all the other tougher kids than him didn't want to mess with me either. Not like I was like some mafia hitman all of a sudden. And number four, it changed the way my, uh, it changed the way I saw my friends. That I wasn't some little subservient squirt. So one revelation can impact multiple aspects of how you see things. Truth leads to truth, leads to truth, leads to truth. It just begins to unlock like, dom like dominoes. So whenever revelation comes, receive it, but then please act on it. John 16, 13. <clears throat> However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. He will guide you. To be guided means you have to go. You have to move. A lot of us pride ourselves of being filled with the Spirit, but how many of us are actually being led by the Spirit? It's, it's great to be filled with the Spirit, but unless, unless there's movement, you're just a pond when you're supposed to be a river. Do you feel uplifted yet? <laughs> Sorry. It's always very quiet when I talk. I know my... My wallpaper paste mentality kind of. It's, it's a loving self-loving. It's okay. I'm kidding. Okay. So, as a worship leader, how much time do I have? 12. Till 12. 
about 30 minutes. My goodness, that took a while. Sheesh, Bob, we're going to have to fly. As a worship leader, I've had the joy of, of receiving many people's opinions about music over the years. And how it should sound and how it should be and how, you know, whatever. I can say the things that... <laughs> Um, and when I, worked, when, I, when, I, when I took over the position of uh, worship director at Christ for the Nations, immediately people flocked to me to help me. I was so thankful. And over the course of, it was probably within the first couple of weeks that I was there, I had four different individuals literally come to my office and share their help with me. And one of them said, if you really want to know what worship is, you have to understand which one should we do first. Let's say it was the house of prayer folks. So if you really want to understand what worship is, you need to understand the song of Solomon. Because that's going into the courts, the inner courts, the chambers where the intimacy is. And that's that's what real worship is. It's being pursued by the lover of your soul. It's like, yeah, that's good. I get it. That's, that's good. That is worship. Another one said, if you want to understand worship, you have to understand and grab hold of the hymns because it's, what the, it's, it's like the bedrock of the church. It's the meat and the theology. Shh of the church. <laughs> it's okay, I did this to her last night. And I'll do it again tonight. Um, I'm going to sit right here. <laughs> I'm going to eat loud, crunchy snacks. Um, hymns. Hymns are the bedrock of the church. It's, the, it's standing on the shoulders of the saints and, and declaring the same prophetic hymnal declarations that have been de uh, declared for you know, hundreds of years. I was like, that's true. That's good. I like that. That is worship. Another would say, if, if you want to know what real worship is, you have to understand the heart of David because David was a warrior. If you want to understand what real worship is, David was as a warrior and a worshiper. So you have to understand warfare, what it is to declare and carry a sword while you lead worship. <clears throat> you know who I'm talking about. And um, I say, yeah, that's, that's true too. I love that. I, I, that makes sense. And another would say, if, if you understand worship, you have to understand praise because even the Psalms say to enter his courts with thanksgiving, enter his gates with thanksgiving, his courts with praise. So that, that is, that's the password. That's what gets you into worship. And without, without having that, you don't have any of it. It's like, that's true. That's good, too. So for days, I chewed on the very diverse, almost contradictory viewpoints of worship. Because they were all correct, right? And if they're all correct, then something's wrong. And... 
So wandering around my desk one morning, asking the Holy Spirit about it, he gave me this image. He said, it would be like if you asked them, for example, what this is. If I were to ask those four people, what is this? One would say, it's black. Another would say, it's got a flat surface. Another would say, it has a pedestal. Another would say, it's hard. They're all correct. So what's wrong? They're defining aspects, various facets of this, but they're missing the point. This is a podium, or this is a table. So likewise, when we talk about hymns, when we talk about praise, when we talk about warfare and declaration, when we talk about intimacy in the inner courts, all of those are responses in worship. They are not themselves worship. They are tools in the toolbox, shall we say. <clears throat> the problem is when we find our favorite tool and only use that one. Um, I love playing trivia games. But like if I were playing Trivial Pursuit and every single question that was asked, I, I say Santa Claus. At some point, I'm probably going to get it right. Which I think when I look back over, especially my, my younger worship years, that's why, man, that particular worship service was awesome. And then this one was a misfire, this one was a misfire, this one was, this one was awesome. Because I keep coming with my, same, with my same approach, with my same approach. And then occasionally I'll line up with what God is actually doing. As opposed to learning to come into his presence and say, where are you, Lord? How can I minister to you today? And... Uh, if I can use my wife as a uh, demonstration, I, a few years into marriage, I learned that uh, I'm still learning to learn this seasonally, I feel, uh, for the rest of my life until death does me part and she kills me or something. Um, My role with my wife is, is threefold. I am her husband, I'm her lover, and I'm her friend. Um, marriages start to fall apart when, when one or both parties choose one of those roles and stay there. Um, now, it's very easy as husbands to, once you become married, to dump the, the friend and lover part and just be a husband. And those are very, very different roles. Um, as a husband, I'm her covering. I'm her. I, I, I take care of her, um, supply needs, and or supply for needs. She's got enough needs on her own. Um, that was a joke, sort of. Um, again, my face doesn't work, folks. You got to help me out. Meet me halfway. Um, I'm her friend, so we talk and we hang out and. I'm her lover, and I'm not going to go into detail on that. Um, so let's say we, I come home from, from, from work, and, and uh, I've got a rose in my mouth and chocolate under my arm. I sneak in the back door and put some Barry White on. 
And I find her in the back where she's working on the computer and dealing with taxes and IRS stuff. And I'm trying to make moves on her, but she's not responding somehow. She's actually quite frustrated. Why is that? She doesn't need the lover in that moment. She needs me to be her husband. A covering, right? Let's say I come home. Different scenario now. I come home and walk in the door, and it's dimly lit. Why are there candles everywhere? And why is Barry White <laughs> smeared on the walls? And, and then she comes out and... and and now she's ready to be in lover mode, and I say, let's just watch a movie. Let's just talk and be friends. Well, I've missed it again. Because if I really love her and I've given my life to serve her, and quite honestly, it feels hypocritical because I'm not very good at this. I'm still learning this. Then it's my it's my my duty, my responsibility, my joy to, when I come into her presence, find out where she is and then interact with her, minister to her in that regard. But because of insecurities, we don't really do that. We tend to find our favorite facet in our personality or whatnot. And then we choose to only interact with people around us, and especially with God, in that regard. How are you doing this morning? Oh, I'm good, brother. No, you're not. Just be real. You're broken. It's okay. That's one thing that David was so good at that. He, read through the Psalms. How many Psalms does he start out with? self-loathing and talking about his spleen about the pop and nobody likes him and his enemies are trying to kill him and he has no like no facebook likes that day and all kind of stuff you know all the important things and then about halfway through his loathing he'll insert but not b-u-t-t b-u-t however in spite of, and I've, I learned that, especially in the, in the, in the Hebrew, whatever, whatever that word is, but our variation would be but, when that word is used, it is to say everything that existed before this word is now wiped out. So whenever David says, but you, O God, and then he goes on to worship and praise. It says, this is the... Here is the state of things. Life stinks. Facebook, blah, blah, blah. However, in spite of all of that, all of that disappears in the light of your glory, in the light of your goodness, in the light of your faithfulness. What if we could be that honest when we come to church, when we come to hang out together as a body, to be honest about where we were instead of just pushing it down or hiding it so we think people can't see it? Honesty before the Lord and before one another. Come on, there's so much healing in that. It's hard to get free from something you keep trying to ignore. So, worship. 
Worship is a podium. No. Again, they were defining what? Facets of what this was, but they were missing the point. Worship is not just a particular style. These are all responses. So here's the definition, if you want to write this down. This is the definition of worship that I've found. And I know there are 100 million definitions out there, but this is kind of the lowest common denominator I've found. Worship is appropriately responding to God's presence. Notice there's music is not mentioned in that. Worship is how, how, I, how I engage with the Spirit of the Lord, which is everywhere all the time, right? It's not something I come and visit once or twice a week. It's at the grocery store. I, I think he's even at Walmart. And as a result, when I'm aware of his presence, how do I respond to him right there? Does that mean acknowledging the person that I don't want to acknowledge because they, they seem like they've got a lot of baggage and I just do not have it in me today? But maybe a simple engagement would birth hope in their heart that the Holy Spirit can then wedge himself into. Worship is... Opportunities for worship are all over the place. So then after coming up with or finding that definition, then I wanted to know, how does worship even happen? I always want to know the why of whys and I don't want to turn it into a formula. Understand, I'm not trying to turn formula, make formulaic something that is beautiful and fluid. I would never do that. But I still believe there's a process. There's some, there's, there are things that happen in a line. And then the result at the end of that line is up to us. Bless you. Only two sneezes. After the third one, you're just trying to get attention. So this is how I believe worship happens. Before I can worship something, I have to become aware of it. After I become aware of it, my understanding of that thing increases. Oh, thanks, Chief. Once my understanding of that thing increases to a point where I realize or I... I, I begin to calculate that that thing has greater value than I do or does not. If I, if I come to the understanding or at least the assumption that that thing has greater value than I do, then I have the choice to make to submit to it or not. If I submit to that, yes, it has greater value than I do, then worship becomes a natural outflow, becomes a reflexive act. Another way to look at it, perhaps a simpler way, is to say revelation plus surrender equal worship. One day I had a, a student come into my office, Jonna Allen, actually it was. It was. And uh, <clears throat> she said, I need your help. I've been teaching my, uh, it was a junior high group at the time, been teaching them about worship for the past year and a half and they're just not getting it 
What should I do? I didn't know what to do. But don't you like it when the Holy Spirit kind of inserts himself in a conversation and makes you look smart? Whenever that happens, I always do my best to be cognizant enough to give him credit right away so he'll do it again later. So she said, what should I do? And almost immediately, Holy Spirit interjects, and I said, it's simple. Stop teaching about worship. And she said, what? And I said, what? And I said, well, you can worship anything, right? She said, yeah. You can worship money or relationships, can you not? Yeah. I said, have you ever seen a book on how to worship money? No. But it happens all the time with, with great skill. So what's the difference? Lots of books on how to worship God. No books on how to worship money or relationships, yet people do it all the time. The key happens when, again, when my understanding of something increases to the point where I realize or believe, choose to believe, that thing has greater value than I do, I begin to worship it. So that's what happens with money or cars or relationships or Facebook or whatever. Because anything can be worshipped. <clears throat> I can choose to worship this. Because to, to worship, to worship, to ascribe value is basically worship. Is, is to, to give value to something. Worship is almost like currency in the spirit. So I can choose to worship this. If I worship this, I am saying that this thing is more valuable than I am, whether it is or not. And this is not a spiritual pause. My brain just decided to go take, I'm going to take five. I'll be right back. Just being real. So what you need to do instead, don't teach about worship. Teach about the Father heart of God. Teach about his, his plan for them. Increase their understanding about the one that needs to be worshipped. Because to teach about worship without teaching about God is to create a prosthetic for religion. What is a prosthetic? It is a limb that has function, right? But there's no life in it. So when you, you can know all about worship, but if you don't know about the one that you're worshipping... It's a fruitless tree. <clears throat> also, when I was at CFNI, we got a phone call one day from a, a worship magazine. And they wanted to ask us some questions. One of the questions they asked was, how did Christ for the Nations get its heart for worship? And I was almost insulted by the question. And I said, 
by simply not having a heart for worship, but by having a heart for God. A heart for worship will give you a heart for worship, and you can also not have a heart for God, but have a heart for worship. But if you have a heart for God, you will also have a heart for worship. I never want to be a lover of the vehicle more than the destination. My understanding is so important. That's why coming on Sundays and sitting under good teaching is so important. The understanding that we gain when we come together and we meditate on the word of the Lord together, that becomes revelation that we can stand on to then go to another place and worship. I would really like to have the sermon first and then have worship after. Because then while we worship, we can meditate on what we just talked about and then use that as something to stand on and just go even higher into who he is. Or deeper, just whichever way you want to go. My worship can never exceed my understanding of the object I'm worshiping. Or I can say it this way. To the level I understand something, I will worship it. That's why it's also not just the expanse of my understanding, but the accuracy of my understanding. If I believe that God is judgmental, then I will worship him as if he's judgmental. My worship would be fear-based. Ooh, and I would love to talk about Job, but we're not going to do that right now. Don't have time. Let's see. Maintaining healthy understanding also requires constant maintenance. Have you ever been driving your car and you hit a pothole? And then as a result, when you let go of the wheel, it goes... Life does that to your heart. So you can have a good understanding of who God is, and then life smack you with a pothole. And then your heart starts doing this. And unless you get that corrected, your worship will be aimed just slightly off. And you'll start focusing on either one attribute of who he is or a wrong attribute of who he is. So constant maintenance, constant maintenance. That's why you got to be surrounded by people that can say, mm, looks like your heart's pulling a little bit to the right. I had a kid come to my office one day. I love this story. This is one of my favorite stories. He wanted to share with me the conspir- his conspiracy theories on why, of the dumbing down of worship. I love a good conspiracy theory. So we sat down and said, please, unpack it. Let me know what you got. And he was just like, you know, uh, there's just this oversimplification of worship. We sing about the same stuff all the time. And he listed, he just kind of went, he literally had a list. And he started reading down this list of, themes and subjects that he believed were overdone. In that were the cross and the blood oversung. And then he got to, and his exact words were, 
And how many times can we sing holy anyway? <laughs> I tried not to grin out loud, but I know I must have. <clears throat> and I said, and what is it that the four living creatures sing? Day and night, night and day. He was like, holy, holy, holy. I said, but why is it that if you're saying that we can't sing that, that it's overdone, what enables the angels to do it without stopping? What is it that they have that we don't have? And then he got a little cocky again, like he finally had some leverage. He was like, because they can see God. I said, yeah their revelation so when we can't when we can no longer sing something and it impact us it means that we can no longer see that's not a problem on his end and mind you these are creatures that are covered with eyes their wings I mean they're literally covered with eyes I was talking to the worship team about this last night. But the definition of holiness to a lot of people in our culture is incorrect. It's based on a Constantinian Gnosticism definition of holiness, which is perfection. That's why they're like, well, we can't be perfect, so why even pursue that? Holiness does not mean perfection. Holiness means set apart for. It really means unlike. So when the angels are circling the throne and they're saying, holy, holy, what they're saying is, what I'm seeing right now, I've never seen before. What I'm seeing right now, again, covered with eyes, I've never seen before. What I'm seeing right now, I've never seen before day and night, night and day. They're not merely saying perfect. Yep, still perfect. Like they're inspectors. <laughs> they're constantly in awe of how different in other he is. So how can I be bored with worshiping a God who is limitless and finding out who he is? When I think I've reached the limit, the capacity of revelation I've only lied to myself. When I can sing a song about his blood or the cross, the great cost, and it doesn't impact me, does that mean that the blood has lost power? God forbid. Does it mean that it's somehow lost value to me? If I can sing it and it not impact me, it's only lost value to me. And I'm the one that needs to be fixed. I'm the one that needs to be reminded of what I would be without it. <clears throat> Almost done. A few years ago, a friend of mine, worship friend of mine, that he and I had many worship debates. Uh, brought me to his office and showed me a video of uh, some famous theologians 
who had got together to talk about the problem of worship. And um, a bunch of three-piece suits on stage and uh, quite literally mocking like even what we did this morning. And they showed video clips of different worship streams and without really even using any scripture, just mocked their display and whatnot. But one thing that they really decided to pick on, the main guy addressed this, was the redundancy of their worship, people like us. And it was the fact that they can sing songs like holy, 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 these really simple, you know, he was pointing to the importance of really wordy songs where you're basically singing the Encyclopedia Britannica and, and just mocking our, our redundant, repetitive refrains. And, but his, his point, again, was not scriptural, but he said their repetitive worship is proof of a limited and shallow history with God. And everybody went, yes, that's good. So this friend of mine then stopped the video and turned to me and he said, I think that's good. What do you think? I think that's valuable. I think he's got a point. And I sat there just really disturbed by that. And again, Holy Spirit, alley-oop said, I would like to ask this guy a question. He was an older gentleman. And with and in and, and respect, not in a mocking or pejorious sort of way, I would I would like to ask this this man, excuse me, sir. I assume you've been married to your wife for many, many years. Based on what you've just said. I assume also that every year on your anniversary, the card that you give her increases by a sentence or a paragraph or maybe an extra card. So now it's a small truckload of cards. I don't know. Based on what you've said, because you've said that a limited and shallow history is proved by limited vocabulary. Or is it possible that the very three words that you began your journey together with, I love you, even though there's only three, and it's the very same words you used at the very beginning of your journey, have grown exponentially in the depth of their meaning? Deeper worship is not found in new words. It's found in deepening your understanding of those words. I wrote this blog years ago, and I'll close with this. What's in an offering? Does it really matter? Preference is totally okay. We all have our favorites. I don't believe there's anything wrong with them. 
But we must, we must be careful not to qualify or disqualify an expression of worship based on our likes or dislikes. An expression of worship to the living God found in the mountains of Tibet will likely sound quite different than the heart of worship found in the Blue Ridge Mountains of Kentucky. Which one is more holy? Which one is more appropriate? Who decides? It's pretty easy for us to want to step into the role of quality control for God and choose for him what we believe he deserves. When it doesn't look, feel, sound, or taste like what we're used to, what we grew up with, or maybe just haven't seen before, we reflexively categorize it as potentially hazardous to God's health, so we position ourselves against it. I used to be a pro at this. I mean, I was good. As a worship leader, clearly no one knew or loved God like I did, so I was perfect for the job. I was made for this. You've got to get the facial expression. Pretty much any style I heard for the first time was wrong. But before long, I would get used to it, and it would become more acceptable in my eyes as worship. Funny how that worked. Then one day, years ago, I saw a rock band lead worship. I know, oxymoron. Bear with me. Not just a rock band, but lights, smoke and a wardrobe changed to boot. But somehow, unavoidably clear, was their heart for God and the honoring of his glory was blindingly evident. God was thick in the room, and so was their attention to him. They didn't accidentally stumble into his secret place. They were experienced in finding him and took us along. I was dumbfounded. I had somehow acquired the, the philosophy that worship, true worship, required an expression stripped of creativity. It must be feeble, as if it needed to be wearing sackcloth and an ash hat. But this, this was beautiful, loud, bright and colorful. It blew away my conceptions, and I was left confused. I thought I had it figured out. How could I, I of all people, be wrong? I'm a disciple of Christ for crying out loud. In Matthew 26, the disciples were ticked off at an irreverent and wasteful display given to Jesus. Some woman waltzed in off the street and had the nerve to break a jar of crazy expensive perfume and wash his feet with it. Can you believe it? The nerve. It smelled like a Mary Kay factory had exploded. And did she give any concern for my sensitive allergies? No. Selfish woman. Jesus disagreed. Why? Because even though her display of affection had never been seen before, the adoration in her heart had. It was familiar to him. And he responded. She, in her limited but life-changing... It's really hard to see when my eyes are blurring. Sorry. She, in her limited but life-changing history with the Savior, dared risk showing thankful love to him in the only way her heart could imagine. Take the most valuable thing in her possession and without hesitation 
give it all of it. Her heart spilled out of the affection and gratitude that was unlocked by the transforming encounter she had previously experienced. But everyone else only saw the extremities of the gift, and it was unanimous. They disapproved. The ones closest to Jesus missed it. Perhaps they confused their proximity to him for nearness. Just like them, I think we often fall prey to that same mistake. The counterfeit of discernment is suspicion, and suspicion alienates and discriminates. It judges out of religion and not relationship. A religious spirit prefers a checklist of rules because it's easier to judge a man's actions than a man's heart. And like Cain, it despises the extravagant offerings of Abel because passionate obedience is always greater than dutiful sacrifice. 1 Samuel 16, 7, For the Lord sees not as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. When you define worship by its heart and not its appearance, you will find it exceedingly difficult to draw boundaries around what is acceptable. My daughter doesn't consider procedure when bringing me affection. She'll run through the middle of a room in front of everyone to bring me a gift. The quality of her gift isn't based on her skill with the crayon or the beauty of the rocks she's just gathered. It's found in her heart. The desire to merely interact with me, be near to me, bring me something that we can share a moment over. And that's all I want. I have never, nor will I ever, tell her, what is this? This isn't a drawing of us and sunshine. It's crude. Go back and try harder. No. Whatever gift she brings me, because I know she adores me, will be met with open arms and a grin from ear to ear. In worship, I still have my favorites, but I have learned not to disqualify another, another's offering based on my taste. I'm learning to celebrate alongside their heart. The fact is the Lord is endlessly worthy of praise from every nation, tongue, style, and genre, and I'll not restrict what he sees fit. Because in the end, we're all just offering our best scribbles on paper. That's all I got. Thank you so much, folks. Don't leave. (laughs) He can't leave yet. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Thank you. (laughs) We're all offering up scribbles on paper, right? So today, we're going to take what Gabe just said, and we're going to learn that the Father adores everything that we hand him when it's honorable to his heart, when he sees what's inside, right? Worship is what we bring. It's what we bring. It's what we give. It's what we have. So can you just pray over them? Father, again, you're, you're so much better than we think. So help us change the way we think. Holy Spirit, we, we surrender ourselves to the leading by your Spirit into the fullness of your truth. 
Help us walk out of who we've believed we were supposed to be and into the ones that you've created us to be. All along the way, becoming more secure and believing that you love us fully. And with that understanding, Lord, let every interaction, every moment that we can acknowledge and that those would even increase every single day that we realize we're in your presence. How can we engage with you, Father? So worship is not something that sets up a sermon. Worship is every breath that I take, every thought that I think, every conversation I have, where I invite you to just come and just stand arm in arm with me, invite you into every situation where I realize that worship has so little to do with music and everything to do with just being with you. Not ever leaving your presence because your presence never leaves me. Thank you, Father, that you shape and mold every heart. And as a result, everyone a part of this family as a result, this town, this city is going to be sabotaged with the glory of God because you will release the thing that you're most aware of. Have you ever noticed somebody that's really depressed and when they walk into the room, it feels like they bring clouds with them? Or the opposite, somebody you've heard, you're like, can I just light up a room whenever they walk into it? Because they're releasing whatever's inside. Whatever you're most aware of, whatever you give your thoughts to the most is what you're going to release in the atmosphere. What if you were most aware of God's presence? What if you walked into CVS being most aware of his presence. And then somebody gets accidentally healed standing next to you. And you break darkness. Because darkness never trumps light. So be aware of the light. Amen. Huh? Yes. We love you, man. We appreciate Gabe, right? And do we love his heart for Jesus.